Long ago, there was a man named Abel. God made him a promise that through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. This promise was passed on to Abram's son Isaac and to his grandson Jacob. God revealed to Jacob in a dream that he would give him the land of Canaan to him and to his offspring, which would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. God also promised to be with Jacob and to someday bring him back to the very spot where the dream originated. Jacob's dream from God was being fulfilled, but as God was fulfilling Jacob's dream, in his son Joseph, a new dream was rising. Good morning, Crossroads. How you doing? Good. It's good to see you this morning. Could you welcome our Lexington and Shelby campuses and those joining us online. We're thrilled to have you with us. And uh, I know the last we kicked off our online campus, we have literally hundreds of people that have engaged uh, through our online campus the last two services, so we're thrilled that you're with us, our Lexington and Shelby campus. We love you guys. If you want to take your Bibles out with me and turn to Genesis chapter 37, Genesis chapter 37, if you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 31, Genesis 37, page 31. If you don't have a Bible in your home, take that with you as a gift from our church to you. We want to make sure that every person has a copy of God's Word. Uh, you know, I'm excited about this series. Uh, it's, it's kind of made to really for the generations that come behind us to think about this. And in fact, this story of Joseph, I've been working on a book, and this series is kind of based upon that book that I've been writing about this story. And, uh, and what we're going to do is be looking at, at the story of Joseph in a real profound way. And I believe it will be life-changing if you gr gr grasp it. In fact, a year and a half ago, when I was really journeying through a study of the Old Testament, I, I was walking through Genesis, this story really stood out to me. It, it pierced my heart as I saw it in a fresh and new way. And I hope as we journey through this, you will be encouraged. I want to talk to the young people just for a moment, uh, our, our youth, our students. Let me encourage you. I, I, I thought about this series really from the perspective of my own sons. And what does this look like to live the dream that God has called us to live? What does it look like to dream? And we're going to talk about this as we journey through this book. And uh, if by the way, if you're 80 or 90 years old, this is going to relate to you as well as we read this story. Genesis 37, page 31. How many of you have ever used this expression? Wow, that was a weird dream. Anybody ever done that? You dreamed something, it was weird. Any of us here, just by raise of hand, anybody on our campuses, you would consider yourself a weird dreamer. Anybody? You have weird dreams, like they're bizarre. Uh, you know, I remember when I was a young person, when I was uh, in middle school and even elementary school, there was a saying that went around school that said if you had the dream three times in a row, it would come true. And I remember I was so afraid that when I would have a dream in the middle of the night, that that dream could come true if it happens again and again. Three times, it, can, it comes true. There was actually one dream, I particularly remember, that I actually dreamed three times. And I think I dreamed it because I was so focused on this dream. And it was a dream about Dracula chasing me. It was around Halloween, and literally in one week I had this dream three times. And can I tell you, I stayed awake at night for hours every night wondering, is Dracula going to show up? There are others, now i got to be honest, I've kind of grown out of that, I don't have a lot of dreams that I remember, it might be because I don't sleep very well, and maybe other reasons, but my wife has vivid, real 
dreams, like bizarre, weird, crazy, yet realistic dreams. I'm going to give you one example. This past week, this is absolutely true, she had a dream while she was asleep. She had a dream that a new family came to our church this weekend, and their daughter married our second son, Caleb. I am dead serious. You can ask her. She had this dream that there was a visiting family this weekend whose daughter is going to marry our second son. He's 19, turning 20. Second son, Caleb. Now, I want to confess to you, he's a sharp-looking kid, obviously. <laughs> but can you imagine mom telling, I mean, we t- described, she described this theme to Caleb, and, and the first thing that Caleb asked is, is she attractive? So I want to say this, if you're visiting this morning and you have a daughter, I want to talk to you. <laughs> Two things are going to happen. You're going to talk, come talk to me or you're going to be freaked out by this and you're leaving and never coming back. But my wife had this dream and she has these crazy, weird, bizarre dreams. Now I want you to think about dreams for a moment. Isn't it true that dream is actually an ambiguous term? What do I mean? We throw the word dream out for a lot of different things. I want to highlight two ways that we see dreams, right? First of all, there are dreams that we would call, uh, I I would describe them as personal, but they really are physical processes. They're dreams that are physical in nature. They happen at night. We have no control over them, just like I just described. They are physical processes, in fact, studies will show, uh, one study done by, by Psychology Today, a magazine, uh, back in 2015, they did a robust study on dream and dreamology. And what they found were things like this, that they believe that dreams happen with four specific reasons. But there are a myriad of those reasons, and they don't know which one it is. So there are some that will say dreams happen because our brain is processing short-term memory into long-term memory. And so we have these dreams because our brain is processing what we've learned in the short-term and putting it back in the memory banks of our long-term. Others said it is a result of reflecting on experiences in our waking life, that we have these dreams at night because we're reflecting on what happened while we were awake. That doesn't explain my wife's dreams. Uh, Some will say they're a form of consciousness that actually unites the past with the present and the future. That would explain it. So there's this past thought, this present experience, and we start to think about the future, and our brain is putting that together. Others believe that it's our brain that is trying to guard itself, that our brain is putting a defense mechanism in to prepare for future threats, future dangers, future situations that may grip us. Here's, Here's the conclusion of that study. So 2015, they did this big study on dream, and psychology today concluded there is no simple answer, and there is no single theory of the dreams we have at night. Leave it to doctors to come up with that. We don't know why, why it happens. No one knows exactly why. So there is one side of dreams that are physical processes. We're not really going to talk about that. That's not the purpose of this series, to talk about physical dreams. What we want to talk about is what I would call personal pursuits, right? We use the word dream to describe our personal pursuits, the things that we go after in life. We are taught at a very young age, pursue your dream, fulfill your dream, chase your dream. Uh, You've heard me share before, I remember when I was in middle school, we had what were called self-esteem classes, 
And what they would do is try to teach us to think positively about ourselves. And so we had dreams about life. What do you hope to become when you get bigger? I remember at one point I wanted to be the president of the United States. So God, that didn't happen. I had a dream that I wanted to be an astronaut. I had a dream I wanted to be a police officer. I had these dreams, right? And they were teaching us to think positively about our life, to have these type of dreams and make them a personal pursuit. I love the way Steven Spielberg, the great uh, director, he said this. He said, I dream not when I'm asleep, but when I'm awake. What is he talking about? He's talking about the dream that becomes a personal pursuit, this, this passion of life, this ideology of life that we go after. Now, in our culture, in America, we, we, we define it this way as well. Uh, in fact, we define it in a term that we call the American dream. You ever heard that expression, the American dream? It actually comes, it was coined by an author way back hundreds of years, uh, 150 years ago, by the name of a man named James Truslow Adams. And he wrote a book called The, the Epic of America. It was based upon history and other things. It was the hope for this country. And in the, the prologue, he writes these words. He coins the phrase, the American dream. Here's what he writes. He says, the American dream, that dream of a land in which life should be better, richer, and fuller for everyone, with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement. This was a picture of our Constitution that says we should have a pursuit of life and happiness. This idea of the pursuit of happiness that we should have in life, that you should pursue what is rich and fuller for you. So there can become a lot of things in the American dream. It could be that you want to make good money. It could be that you want to find a spouse. It could be that you want to have a house full of kids. It could be that you want a great retirement program. It could be that you want that vacation home. It could be a car. It could be a house with a white picket fence. The American dream becomes whatever you want it to be because you get to define what makes your life fuller, richer, and more expressible. You get to define that, and that's the point of what he wrote, is it should be a place where we pursue these dreams. Successful career, money, own a home, own two, own a car, any of these things we should go after. Now, in their very nature, none of those things are absolutely wrong. But it's interesting the way we as Americans view that American dream. L let me explain. There was a study done by Pew Research back in October of 2017, and this is what they found about the American dream. They found that only one in five actually said the American dream is out of reach. In fact, the majority of Americans believe this is what life is about. 36% said they have achieved the American dream. 46% say they are on their way to the American dream. So in 2017, a majority of Americans say, I'm going after the American dream. The, the, the spouse, the kids, the wife, the car the, the car, the job, the money, the retirement, I'm going after it. Going after happiness. Then in 2018, uh, there was another study done. This was done by MarketWatch.com, and they did this study nationwide and what they concluded was this title, the American dream is even harder to achieve than we thought. And one year later, listen to this, some 75% of Americans said that they believe the American dream is in a danger of extinction. In fact, 20%, nearly 20% said they believe that the American dream is completely unattainable. So in one year, one study says majority of Americans are going after the dream or have reached the dream. And in the next study the next year, most Americans say, I don't think it's even attainable. Now, what does that tell us? We have no clue what it looks like to pursue anything. We don't even know what the dream means. 
Can I tell you, this idea of dreams, passions, and pursuits have actually been the core of our humanity since the fall. What do I mean? If you go back to the book of Genesis, remember what happens after God creates Adam and Eve? He says to them, listen, I'm going to give you every tree of the garden, every tree, but I'm going to ask you not to eat of the one tree, the one tree of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good, good and evil. If you eat of it, you will surely die. But what happens? The serpent shows up and says, whoa, 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 hey, hey, hold on. Satan himself, in the form of a serpent, says, you will not surely die. If you eat of this tree, you will be like God. What was he doing? He was stirring a dream in them. He was stirring a pursuit. He was stirring a passion. He said, if you eat of this tree, you will be like God. And what happens? It says they looked at it, and they saw it was good to the eyes. It was beautiful. It was worth pursuing. And they pulled it off the tree, whatever fruit that was, and they ate of it. And now their eyes were open, and the fall happens. And can I tell you, since the fall, we have been pursuing dreams that only leave us empty, that only leave us desiring more. Dreams that have good intent, but don't actually satisfy what we're yearning for. This pursuit of our dreams has been the American mantra, yet America can't define what that looks like. Now, I want to tell you this as we dive into the Bible. The Scripture never tells us to pursue our dreams. never tells us that. It tells us to pursue godliness. It tells us to pursue life, to pursue love, to pursue righteousness, to pursue faith. Right? We're called to pursue things. In fact, Jesus himself in Matthew says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Pursue that, and all these other things will be added unto us. Never do we find this idea of pursuing our dreams. However... That does not mean that God is anti-dream. God is not anti-dream. In fact, God wants us to walk into the calling he's given to us in life. God wants us to walk into what he has for us, the good works he's prepared for us in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2.10, that he has prepared works for us to do. The question we ask is this. Here's the problem. Here's where the struggle lies. Now follow me. We're introducing this series. What happens when my dreams about life Young people, what happens when the dream you have about your life, uh, old people, what happens that dream that you had about life, or you may still have about life, what happens when our dreams, our passions, and our pursuits collide with God's plan? What happens when our dreams collide with God's plan? That's where we find the problem, and that is the story of Joseph. This is the crux of this series. What happens when our dreams collide with God's plans? One of the things I love about the Bible as we dive into this story is that the Bible is filled with biographies of men and women of faith. We see the stories of men and women, good and bad, success and failure, victories and defeat. We get to see an intimate look at characters. Now that tells us a couple things. Listen, that tells us the reason why we have the stories, the biographies of characters who some followed God well and some didn't. The reason we have this is because we're reminded that the Bible is not just a book to be believed, it is a book to be lived. And a lot of people read the Bible and only see it as a source of theology. Yes, it is the source of our theology, but it is not merely a source of theology. If you look at the Bible only that way, what happens is you begin to take in knowledge without very little life lived for Jesus Christ, and so you become puffed up. The Bible says knowledge puffs up, 1 Corinthians, 
1 Corinthians 13. And what happens, you become puffed up, but you're not actually living it out in your life. You're not sharing the gospel with anybody. You're not serving people. You're, you're not reaching in a community. You're not doing anything for the cause of Christ, but you have great knowledge. Now, we need knowledge. We need to believe the book. But these biographies remind us that we also have to live this book. That it is both personal and practical. That's why I love the Bible. I love reading these stories because it reminds us of real life. It reminds us that we are called to the Bible. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10. He, he says in verse 11, now these things happen to them as an example, talking about the Old Testament, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. He said, this is the point. This is an instruction for us how to live as God's people in our day. So we jump into the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis gives us our beginnings. By the way, that's what the word Genesis means. It means the beginnings. And we find in the beginning four stories followed by four characters. If you want to know the outline of the book of Genesis, it's this simple. It is that we find creation, we find the fall, we find the flood, and we find the Tower of Babel. And at that moment, God moves the scene from events, creation, fall, flood, tower, and he moves the scene to people. And now he makes a promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land, a land that I'm promising you. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And so he promises to Abraham, you will have children like the sand of the sea, uh, like the stars of the sky. He then makes that same promise to Isaac. Remember Isaac, the son of Abraham, the promised son? God calls Abraham to take him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him, and God provides a ram and says, no, 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 I just am testing your faith, Abraham, that you believe and trust in me. And that promised son is saved by God's doing. And, that, that, and God makes that promise to Isaac as well, the son of Abraham. And then Isaac has two sons, twins. Remember Jacob and Esau? Esau was the oldest. Esau means red hair. He was hairy, a red hair most likely. And then there was the second son, the twin that grabbed the heel. Literally, Jacob means grabber of the heel or deceiver. And so he's grabbing his brother's heel. And as they grow up, what happens? Jacob deceives or tricks Esau into stealing the birthright. And eventually, Jacob gets the birthright from the father, meaning he gets the inheritance. Eventually, Jacob escapes and makes his way. Of course, his brother is angry. He makes his way to his uncle Laban. On the way, he has a dream, a dream what's called Jacob's Ladder, and he dreams about this ladder and ascending angels up and down, and he wrestles with God in a moment. And God says, I'm going to give you the land, the land I promised Abraham and Isaac, I'm going to give it to you, Jacob. And eventually, he comes to Uncle Laban. Now, he comes to Uncle Laban with a purpose. He comes to Uncle Laban to find a wife. Now, this is a little odd for us to hear because we read that and we're like, what? He goes to crazy Uncle Laban to find a wife? Like, who goes to their uncle to find a wife? But that's what he does, and that's the culture of that day. He goes to his uncle to find a wife. And he, he finds one of his cousins, odd as it may be, like West Virginia. <laughs> I'm from Maryland, so we can say that. He, he finds a cousin named Rachel who he finds amazing. She's beautiful. And she, he says, Uncle Laban, I want to work and I want to marry that woman. And so La Uncle Laban says, all right, seven years. You got to work seven years, and that'll be your wife. So he works seven years, and they have a wedding. And at the wedding, at the honeymoon, he lifts the veil and finds out he doesn't marry Rachel. He marries the oldest daughter, Leah. Laban tricks him. Jacob, who was a deceiver, now gets deceived. 
Laban tricks him and he sees Leah who it says is, is got weak eyes. Some scholars say Joseph didn't find her attractive, or Jacob didn't find her attractive. Others say that she maybe didn't, was a little bit, her eyes weren't very beautiful. Whatever it may be, he looks at her and goes, that's not who I work for. So he goes back to Uncle Laban and said, Uncle Laban, you tricked me. And Uncle Laban says, all right, all right, I get it, but I have to give you my oldest daughter first. Work seven more years and you get my other daughter. So he ends up marrying both Rachel and Leah. Now, before I go any further, I know some of you will say, Dave, what are you going to do about that? I mean, there's polygamy in the Bible. Can I tell you an honest truth? Polygamy never works. It never goes well. Men, we can barely handle one woman. We can certainly not handle two. It never works well. So there's no, no moment where God actually prescribes polygamy. There's no moment where God says, let me endorse polygamy. It actually always goes bad for the people. And so, actually, God is painting us a picture that culture doesn't give us the answer to marriage either. That culture doesn't define marriage. He has to define marriage. God made Adam and Eve. God, in, in the New Testament, we find him defining marriage as husband and wife. And so, we see the definition given by God, and proof of it is looking at the Old Testament that it doesn't work any other way. So, we find him married to Rachel and Leah. Leah is able to have children, but Rachel, the wife of his promise, the wife he wanted, is barren. She cannot have children. And so... Rachel gives to Jacob two handmaidens, that was a little odd as well, named Bilhah and Zilpah, and they have children, but Rachel does not, and eventually God opens Rachel, Rachel's womb and she has a son, and that son's name is Joseph. So as we pick up this story in Genesis 37, this is the son of the wife that he wanted. This is the story of Jacob through Joseph, and this is where we pick up Genesis 37, this story. Now, as we read this, Joseph becomes the longest story in the book of Genesis. Why? Because Joseph's story is going to be a hinge point between Genesis and the Exodus. We're going to see in this story that God's providence secures God's promises, that God knows what he's doing and he has a plan in the midst of all this chaos that we see. Take a look with me, Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. So this is really the story of Jacob through Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So Joseph here, right from the very beginning, is tattletaling on his brothers. He's coming to report a bad report. By the way, if you read the story, you find they weren't very good. They were not very good brothers anyway. Verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He was the son of his wife that he really desired, Rachel. And he made him a robe of many colors. We're going to get to that in the weeks to come. He made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So the father gives him a coat of many colors robe of many colors, they can't stand him. The brothers are like, this is ridiculous. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. I want to stop there. Who do you think would be the last people you should tell this dream to? The people that hated you. Right? Watch what happens. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, most likely sheaves of wheat. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright and behold, your sheaves gathered around it, and they bowed down to my sheaf. Joseph here says, 
I'm the chief sheaf. Hashtag chief sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Listen, if you have a dream, the brothers you hate, the, the siblings you don't like or get along with, and you have a dream that they're going to bow out of you, you probably don't want to tell them. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. See, his father, remember, had a dream as well. That dream of that ladder. He kept it in his mind, but he says, Joseph, what are you thinking? What in the world are you dreaming here? Now, I want to I see some facts at the beginning of the story. First of all, we have a young man who is 17 years old. What we know about Joseph he, is he is a young man. Secondly, we know that he's working in his father's, uh, father's pasture. He is working the land with his father. They have sheep, they have animals, they have a farm. He is a farmer. And at this point in the story, when you first read this, Joseph, 17 years, has no clue what is about to happen to his life. There is no future in Joseph's mind except to be a farmer, take over the family business, give his land then to his own kids. And then all of a sudden, Joseph has a dream. This is point one, and that is Joseph's dream. Joseph's dreams. He has two dreams. One dream with a sheaf that's bowing down, uh, the sheaves bowing down to his sheaf, and then we have a dream of the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him. By the way, notice the em emphasis that he says on that secondary dream, that second dream. It says, verse 9, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to who? He actually said, they're bowing to me. Father, mother, brothers, you're going to bow to me. We find Joseph's dream. Now, when I think about this, I can't help but think of a statement by Mark Twain, the well-known author and poet. He said this. He said, there are two great days in a person's life. The day we're born and the day we discover why. Think about that for a moment. There are two great dates in a person's life. The first one is easy. It is a set date. It is a literal date. It is a date like February 8th and 9th. It's a date like April 19th. It's a date like July 2nd. It's a date like November 18th. It's a date like uh, December 21st. It is a date where we make our first appearance in this world. It is a date when we join this ball of dirt and make our presence known. But the second date, the date we understand why, is a little harder to come by because it's not a, really a literal date at all, is it? It's a date we realize why God put us on earth. Why did God put us here? What is our purpose in this place? Why have we joined the seven billion other people on this floating ball of dirt? Why is that? The first one, it'll tell you that you have a presence on earth. The second one will give you your purpose on earth. Oftentimes, that second one takes a lot longer to figure out than the first one. And can I tell you, life is like that. If we read this story, and you were to go to Joseph and say, Joseph, do you know why you were born? He would say, to tend my father's flocks, to have kids one day and pass it on to them. And all of a sudden, these dreams show up. These dreams show up that now become his passion. How do we know that? Because notice he tells his brothers. Notice he, he tells them about these dreams. By the way, you, you want to see what these dreams really look like. Notice the audience's reaction. His brothers don't like him. They hate him. And his father says, what have you done? 
Why are you having this dream? Do you really think we're going to bow down before you? Now, when we think about dreams in this way, there are really two types of dreams that we can talk about. The first one is what I define as divinely inspired dreams. I want to make sure we understand that when we read this story, this is a divinely inspired dream. What do I mean? These are dreams that are specifically connected to the inspiration of Scripture. So we have dreams all throughout the Bible, the dreams of Daniel, the dreams of the wise men in the Christmas story, the dreams of Pontius Pilate at the death of Jesus. Remember, his wife has a dream to not put him to death, Jesus, that is. Peter has a dream. Peter has a dream to go take the gospel to the Gentiles. Those are divinely inspired dreams. Those are dreams specifically for the purpose of telling us scripture. This is one of those dreams. You and I don't have divinely inspired dreams, but we do have divinely impressed dreams. You could say divinely implanted dreams. These are dreams that God implants in us, impresses upon us to live out in our lives. We have divinely impressed dreams. These are good desires that God has given to us. They're also still redemptive. They also still have a purpose. They're dreams for our family. They're dreams maybe about our job. There are dreams about a business that we want to start. There are dreams about trips we want to take. There are dreams about a, a career we want to have. There are dreams about ministry where we want to serve. You might have a dream about a ministry that God is impressing upon you, and it's a divinely impressed dream. You may have a dream to sing on the next season of the American Idol. Uh, you got to determine whether that's from God or not, if you can sing or not. If there was a hip-hop version, I'd be there. Breaking it down, breaking it down. That's what, right? But, but you got to know, do you have the gifts or not, right? Can you be on that? Right, so these dreams aren't bad dreams. They're not in and of themselves wrong. These dreams determine our pursuits. These dreams determine our passion. See, dreams become a vision of what our life becomes. They become what we focus on to, to further our lives. Now, what's interesting, whether it's a divinely inspired dream in the Bible or whether it's a divinely impressed dream given by God, both of them have the same reaction. Think about this for a moment. When you have a dream that God lays in your heart, it could be a dream to get a new car. It could be a dream to get that job. A dream to get married. A dream to have kids. When you have that dream, what happens? You tell the people, and you begin to pursue it, right? I mean, we both have the same reaction. We, we tell others, hey, I had this dream. I got to hear about this dream I have. I mean, I got this passion, this passion. I, I just feel God laying on my heart. I got to tell others, and then I got to start pursuing it. That's what Joseph does here. He, he, he tells his brothers, and then he begins to pursue this dream, that you will bow down to me. It's our natural bend to react this way. That leads to number two. Joseph did not know, had no clue how this story would end up. So he has these dreams. You and I have these dreams, not inspired dreams like the Bible, but we have impressed dreams. We have no clue how they're going to end up. For you, it may be that dream of marriage. It may be that dream of kids. It may be that dream of career. It may be that dream, right? You're a grandparent, that dream of, man, I want to retire well. I want to enjoy life. There's a dream of that. But we don't know how life is going to end. We don't know what's going to come next. In fact, I think we have a problem that Joseph didn't face. What's the problem? We know how the story ends. When you read this story, you and I can go to the end and read it very quickly and understand it. We're going to do that in a second. But here, he had no clue about his future. He had no clue about what was going to take place. No matter how hard we try, it's almost impossible to read this amazing, unpredictable adventure without knowing the end of the story. When you know the end of the story, it would be easy to read this story and lose all of the unexpected. 
that we lose all of the unexpected about to take place. So the question I ask is, how much did Joseph know about his future with these dreams? Nothing. Nada. No. Nien. That's all I know in languages of no. He had no clue. No clue about the future. He, did he know that he was going to be thrown into a pit? No. Did he know he was going to be put into prison? No. If you didn't know that, you can read that. We're going to get there. But he had no clue of these things. When he heard these dreams, it was as if his brothers should just bow down at the moment. Why? Because he had this dream. And can I tell you, you and I had these dreams about life, but we have no clue what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, yesterday morning, I did a funeral, officiated a funeral for a dear lady of our church, 59 years old. Two years ago, found out that she had pancreatic cancer. Probably lived much longer than the doctors expected when they found out that she had pancreatic cancer. Can, can I tell you, there was no clue two years ago that this was what her life would be like, that she would pass. 59 years old, that's young. But no clue about life. No clue how that could happen. We're reminded that life is fragile. Life is short. Life is, is like a vapor, the scripture says. It, it appears and then it vanishes. It doesn't last long. Life is, is uncertain and fragile. No one knows what tomorrow comes. Joseph here had no clue how these dreams, what these dreams were going to do to his life. He had no clue how these dreams were going to leave him. One phone call can change everything. I think we do well in this story to remember that Joseph had no, has no clue about what's about to happen to him. All he knows is this dream comes. He's pursuing it. He tells his brothers and his father, and he goes forward. That leads to point three, and that is this. Joseph's life consists of a series of events that seem to kill his dreams. Now, this is what this series is going to be all about. As you read the story of Joseph, there is a series of events that happens that seems to indicate that something or someone is trying to kill his dreams. And can I tell you, there is something in someone that can try to kill our dreams, our passions, our pursuits. There is something in the way that stands as a wall between our pursuits as well. We're going to talk about that over the series. There are things that get in the way of our pursuits. But what I'm going to do, I want to fast forward to the end of this story. Because I want to show you where this story actually ends, which gives us insight into all that Joseph experiences that show us why his dream had to die. Go back to Genesis chapter 50. I want to show you the end of the story. Joseph, Genesis chapter 50. Joseph ends up becoming the second in command of Egypt. He is working under the Pharaoh. His brothers, his father, they've been gone. Right? They're, 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 they're still back home. Eventually, there's a famine in the land, and they come to Egypt to find goods. And Joseph, being the second in command, sees his brothers. Eventually, there's a reunion of his family. His dad then passes away, and now his brothers are afraid that Joseph is going to take revenge against them. But I want you to see something right here at the end. It's a well-known verse, but we missed the first part of this verse, and I want to show it to you. Genesis 50, and we'll begin in verse 18. It says, his brothers also came... And they fell down before him. Stop there for a moment. What was Joseph's dream in Genesis 37, decades before? You, the sun, moon, and stars, will bow down before me. It's very personal. You will bow before me. Now we come to Genesis 50, and what's happening? They're bowing before him. Here it is, and they're before his face. And notice their, their phrase. Behold, we are your servants, Joseph. 
Now, this was against, by the way, the nature of family, right? The oldest had authority over the youngest. Here is the second youngest in the family. There will be a brother to Joseph named Benjamin. This is the second youngest. Here they are bowing down before Joseph, the second youngest. You will bow before me. Here it is being fulfilled right before our eyes. But I want you to notice Joseph's reaction. But Joseph said to them, do not fear For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I want you to notice, we all hear, if you've ever read this story, you've ever read the Bible, you hear that phrase, what was meant for evil, God meant for good. We've said that before, we use that as an expression, but don't miss the previous phrase. See, many people don't talk about that. He says, do I stand in the place of God. This is point four and our last point. That's this, that God was a centerpiece of Joseph's dream. In the beginning, you will bow before me. In the end, do I stand in the place of God? Don't bow before me. Do I stand in the place of God? Don't fear. See, all of a sudden, what we find is God is the hero of the story. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I think we we have to be very cautious at making biblical characters archetypes of God. What do I mean? There are many scholars here that will say, well, Joseph is a type of Christ, and we read the story of Joseph, it's like Christ. I find that very dangerous because our theology begins to contradict for those of you that are deeper, you know what I'm saying here, right? And when we say that a character is like Jesus, by the way, we all should be, right? If you're a Christian, we are called Christians because we are a little Christ. But the reason we're Christians isn't to look at, have people look at us and go, you're Christ. It's for people to look at us and go, wow, you must know Christ. Big difference. And I think our theology begins to contradict when we say that God is the hero of every story of the Bible, and yet we say that characters are like God. Joseph here is not an archetype of Christ. Joseph here, and this, by the way, this verse proves it. Joseph here is an arrow pointing to to God and saying, listen, this is not about me. This bowing down isn't about me. I am not in the place of God. This is about God. This entire dream, this entire journey really comes back to God. God is the centerpiece. The whole point of this story in Genesis is to show that God's promises and God's purpose in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be preserved. That God does keep his word to his people and he will secure his people even in Egypt. That's the whole point. God is the centerpiece of the story. Yes, there are things that Joseph does that are very godly, that are very much godly and Christ-like. But Joseph is not Christ. Joseph is saying, I don't stand in the place of God. I want to end with three questions. And we're going to unpack this over the next few weeks, this powerful story. Number one, Am I pursuing my dream more than I am pursuing God? That's the question we get when we read the story of Joseph. Am I pursuing my dream more than I am pursuing God? So we live in a culture, find your dreams, chase your dreams, fulfill your dreams. And so this question is a gut honest question to every believer here, every Christ follower. We should answer this question. Am I pursuing my dreams more than I'm pursuing God? If your dream has replaced Jesus in your life, then it's an idol, and it needs to be taken out. See, when we find in the Scripture is when we come in the New Testament, Jesus is our dream. That the ultimate dream that we have is Christ. 
That he is the treasure in the field. That he is the pearl of great price. That he is the one we're pursuing. That in the end, what we want to find is found in Christ. That he is our dream. That he is above all dreams, hopes, and aspirations. That he is what our pursuit should be. Above everything, we pursue God. The dream is not the goal. Knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, and becoming like Jesus is the goal. Second question what are my motives for pursuing my dreams? What are the motives of pursuing my pursuits? Now, let's just be honest if we ask this question. None of us can claim to have complete, pure motives for anything we do, right? We, we live in an increasingly self-focused culture. And if we're being brutally honest, whose dream are we actually pursuing and why are we pursuing it? And I've found in my own life that I have a tendency to mask my self-centered pursuits in spiritual language. You know what I mean? Where I'll have this pursuit that I feel like I'm doing, I'll say, well, I feel like God's telling me to do this. God, you're telling me this, I'm going to go after it. And so I mask my dream, my pursuits, with spiritual language to make me feel better. But it actually is very self-centered. It's actually meant to f satisfy myself. It's not really meant to bring glory to God at all. It's meant to just satisfy what I want in life, what I think I should have in life. I don't even see God about it. I just say I think it's from God. And so I mask my passions, my pursuits in spiritual language. Here's a question that I found. So I've been a Christian now for multiple decades. I came to Christ at a young age. I've been in ministry now nearly two decades, serving the church body. And here's what I found. I have found... If I want to know my motives, when God denies my dream, when God delays my dream, or when God redirects to me my dream, how do I respond? If you want to know your motive, ask that question. If God redirects, if God denies, if God, if God uh, delays my dream, now, how do I respond? When my dreams, my purposes, my passions collide with God's plan, how do I respond? That'll give you indication as to how you view your motives. Now, listen, my motives might lead me to being disappointed, confused, or sad, but am I willing to surrender to God and his way? That's the question. What are my motives? And lastly, where are my dreams leading me? The last question we should ask is, where are my dreams leading? So I, I want pure motives. I want to pursue God more than my dream. Where are my dreams leading me? Can I tell you, there are many dreams that people have about life that are not leading them toward what God desires for them. What do I mean? There's a questions that we can ask. In fact, I would dare say we should change the question instead of saying, what's my dream? We should change it to say, replace it with, what's my unique contribution to the glory of God? Imagine if instead of saying, what's my dream? What's my passion? What's my goal? Young people, instead of saying that, what if we said, what's my unique con contribution to bring glory to God? That's... Right, Joseph, in the end, this dream wasn't about me. I don't stand in the place of God. By the way, there are many things that we can chase that leave us away from God. Maybe you're chasing a dream, and it's drawing you farther away from God rather than closer to him. Maybe you're chasing a dream that is in direct opposition of God. Right? If you come and you say, hey, I, I, I'm living with somebody that I'm not married to, but I, but I have this dream. I can tell you that dream is not from God. That dream is in direct opposition to the Word of God. And so if, if you want to know what, what dreams are right, 
What does God's word say? Maybe you have a dream, a passion that's requiring you to abandon your clear responsibilities that God has given you. If your dream is causing you to abandon your spouse or to abandon your kids or to abandon a good work ethic or to abandon uh, provision for your family, that dream is not from God. It's in direct opposition to God's responsibilities for you. But the other side of that is, what if this dream, what if this passion that's worth pursuing is expressing my love to God and, and others? What if this dream utilizes my God-given passions and gifts? What if it helps my neighbor, if it serves my community, it shares the gospel around the world? It's probably good. What if it requires me, this dream, to live dependently on God, not independently from God? It's probably a good pursuit. Here's the point. Don't make the mistake of pursuing a dream, pursuing a passion that God doesn't approve. I pursue... God. Pursue Christ. Seek first his kingdom. All these other things will be added unto you. Uh, That's the question of of this story and we're going to look at it over the next few weeks. But does my dream stand in the place of God? Do my passions stand in the place of God? Is God my pursuit? Is Christ my pursuit? Or is it what I want? We're going to look at this sermon series And can I tell you, your dreams might die, your passions may seem to die, but God's purpose prevails, and that's the point. In the end, do I stand in the place of God? No. His purpose in my life is what matters. Would you stand with me across every campus as we pray? If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ, listen, God's plan. He came to earth, died on a cross for you, walked out of a grave for you. His purpose is clear. His purpose is to save you. His purpose is to offer to you this salvation. Now, he's got to work that in you. He's got to open your eyes, got to open your hearts. That's what he does. You, you can't earn it or deserve it. It's his work. But maybe this morning he's, he's saying, listen, I, I, the dream is me. The pursuit is me. You're looking, looking, looking to satisfy something in your life. No, no, no. Jesus is it. He's what we need. He's what you need. And today would be the day that you say, I want to respond with faith. I want to transfer my trust from myself, everything bowing down to me, and transfer it to God and say, God, I trust in Jesus Christ who died for me and rose again for me. Maybe you're here and you know Christ. Many of you do. Is your passions and pursuits more important than your pursuit of God? What's your motives? Is your dream or are your dreams leading you away from God or toward God? That's the question. Because in the end, do I stand in the place of God? The answer is no. Dreams will never do that. Passions will never do that. God is the hero of the story. Would you bow with me as we pray? God, I want to thank you for this reminder. Lord, I know I need this. So often I find myself chasing after things that I desire. Some of them good. Some of them are are, are right in, in thought, but God, in heart, they're wrongly motivated. And God, so easily we can mask our self-centered passions with spiritual language. God, I pray that as Joseph found out decades later in his life, do I stand in the place of you, God? No, you are the hero of our stories. You are what our lives are about. It's not about my passions. It's not about my dreams. God, it's about you. And when I understand you are the dream, everything else falls into place. Now I understand my purpose in family. Now I understand my purpose with my kids, my purpose with my wife. Now I understand my job. I understand why I should work hard. I understand why I should, I should give and live a generous life. Why, why Lord, I should, I, I should think about retirement and think about retiring not from from 
you, but with work to be able to give more for your glory. God, I start to rethink things when you are my pursuit. And so, God, be our pursuit. Be our pursuit. Christ, may we long for you. May we run after you. May we want more of your glory in our lives so you work your way through our lives. In your name, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. Amen.